This is the Pink Spoke Podcast. I am your host, John Cribbs, here with Christopher Funderburg. We are the Pink Smoke. Chris, how are you doing tonight? I am doing great tonight. How are you, John? I'm doing great. This is my time of year, as I always like to say. You know, I love the weather. Love what the are movies we- that we watch. It's October. We're watching horror movies. That's what we're doing. So what are the two? What's what's what are what are we getting into here, John? And and who proposed this? <laughs> this was a Chris Funderburg original. We are talking about The Stepfather, the 1987 film, and Audition, the 1999 Japanese film. Yeah, and I wanted to to do this because um, we had done an episode a, a while ago now on Touche Pa Grisby and Any Number Can Win. And we, just the idea of that episode was doing um, just a pairing of, of double feature of Jean Gabin is getting too old for this shit, double feature. Yeah. And I it's a great thought- idea. Yeah, I thought it was fun to do a pairing and I and I sort of wanted to do another one and we didn't we didn't have a lot of like fantastic ideas for a Halloween episode. We did Diabolique and we did a book and then it was like let's try and do something actually special because this episode is going to go up on Halloween day itself. So this felt like a um uh, a good way to do that to just do a double feature and we sort of cycled through some ideas you had a lot of good ideas i rejected them all for this idea which was basically my first idea uh, you were like well you are eventually like well whatever you want to do chris um but uh these are two movies that are about um replacement families or somebody becoming a replacement within a pre-existing family. And I thought that was a good theme. I thought it was an interesting theme. They're both movies that I love. I love both of these movies. I think you're on the same page with that. But um, but these were two movies by artists that I like. And it just said that that'll be fun. Let's explore that. Let's dig into this idea sort of of replacement families and replaceable parts within family units. How modular is family? Uh, is, oh, yeah. your, is Your idea was the best one. I mean, I got to concede that this, these are two great <laughs> movies. This is a cool connection between them that I wouldn't have just thought up, uh, you know, just sitting around <laughs> twiddling my thumbs. So it was a great <laughs> idea. I, I love revisiting these films. I think Joe Bob Briggs on Last Drive and showed both of these films like in the last year of the show. So, oh God, did he? I know he did the stepfather recently because I went to watch it before we not recorded together. this. Not together. No, but, I know, but yeah. but I went to watch the stepfather episode again in one segment and I was like, oh, this is a terrible idea to watch this. If I watch this, I'm just gonna be doing Joe Bob shtick the whole time. I'll just be saying, and another thing Joe Bob said, I need to, I need to not do this. So I uh so I I, <laughs> I threw that idea out after five minutes. And now you're right, I remember that he did audition as well, but that's I didn't I didn't go back and watch watch that again um well that's setting a high bar bar for us john i said these are two of my favorite artists here i did not say two of my uh favorite directors Takeshi Miike, the director of audition i obviously love a lot but i think there's a, a different artist that i would locate as as maybe not the auteur but sort of the more interesting artistic voice behind the stepfather it's directed by joseph rubin but i i think so much of him that in all of our prep i kept referring to Ms. David Rubin. That's clearly how how big this director looms in my mind. Who the director who, of Money Train? What the hell, Chris? Dreamscape, John. We are not robbing the Money Train. <laughs> I, how many times have I told you this? We know- can rob the Money Train within the Dreamscape. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> I know you've got a gambling problem. Um, 
so who is so the the who is the artist I'm talking about that I think that I think you would agree is the if not driving force the more interesting creative force on the stepfather right? Well, without a doubt, you're talking about the great Donald E. Westlake, who we've talked about. Have we talked about anyone more on the show? Maybe Patricia Highsmith, but definitely Donald Westlake. We've covered lots of his books. We bring him up whenever we can. We're both huge fans. Uh, Donald Westlake, of course, is the great crime uh, fiction author who published multiple books under his own name and then also books under the name Richard Stark, the Parker series that everyone knows so well from the film adaptations. Uh, And he's just great. He's a great comedic voice. He's just a wonderful crime fiction writer, a great New York crime fiction writer, I should include, and uh, someone we love. And he did a few screenplays uh, in the 80s and early 90s. And this was really the first one. This is the first one that was like a fully Donald E. Westlake script. You know, his books obviously have been adapted up to that point, but this is the first Donald Westlake joint in terms of a movie. And he was kind of given carte blanche when he went into this film to full creative control. Basically, the filmmakers had to come to him if they wanted to change literally anything about his script. Sort of the reason that he signed on. So it's definitely a big, big Westlake uh, authorial voice going on throughout the stepfather. Where does the idea come from? How does it fit into Westlake's work and his interests? Um, you know, the other major screenplay that I think he's known for writing is The Grifters, right? Based on the Jim Thompson novel. That's sort of the other big screenplay he did. But sort of where did this idea come about? How does it fit in with his other work? So there's a Lutheran family man named John List in North New Jersey in 1971. He loses his accounting job. And for weeks, he kept leaving the house, getting dressed, suited up for work, and would leave, and he would just go, like, sit at the train station all day. He wouldn't tell his family that he had lost his job, and he was just accruing debt and basically going into rock bottom. So he finally decides he's just going to start all over. And the way he's going to start all over is by murdering all five members of his family, leaving their bodies in sleeping bags in the basement, destroying all photographs of himself in the house, informing neighbors that he's taking his family on a vacation for weeks, Um, and then disappearing just completely without a trace. And it's years and years until anyone hears anything about this guy. And in fact, by the time they make the stepfather, he's still on the lam. People will just assume he would have been caught by now or he must have like committed suicide or, you know, uh, or died somewhere without anyone knowing about it, not realizing that he's remarried and he's part of another family again. Yeah, so living living in like story. the uh, yeah like the sort of I, I think it's Colorado he goes to, but it's it's also interesting. He was somebody who was very obsessed with having the perfect family, and they like famously lived in this house that was like a mansion in New Jersey. It had like almost a ballroom style entertaining room, and so he was living above his means a lot too. So when he lost his job. This uh, thing that he had built sort of came crashing down. It's a crazy story. You should you should definitely. There's a few interesting books about it. One of the st- things I find most interesting about this story is um, he when he was found on uh, living this other life, he was under living under the uh, pseudonym Robert Clark. And why this is interesting is he got that name. From Eric Frender, a friend of the podcast who's been on the show several times. He's on the Tangerine Dream episode. He's on the Jean-Pierre Melville episode of Wrong Real We Did, right? And Eric Frender's dad is named Robert Clark Frender. They knew each other in New Jersey. They went to the same church 
in New Jersey. And uh, what? he knew John List. He knew John List. They oh were he was I don't know if he was friends, but they knew each other. And when John List came up with the name, he took Robert Clark Friender. He took Robert Clark, this guy he knew his two first names and he turned it into his pseudonym, which is fucking crazy. It's that just is- it's insane i've known eric for years and i've never heard this story before that is nuts i heard about john list first through eric through this story he told me like oh my dad knew this serial killer he sort of i don't think he knew much about john list he sort of described it in a a little bit of an erroneous way but there's so many strange details about the john list story like the daughter was friends with this high school drama teacher and she was like it, it seems like he was actually, I don't want to speculate. It seems like they had an inappropriate relationship, but he was like, hey, my dad is going to do something crazy. My dad's always been crazy. He would like do the, you know, the Kingo Gondo thing of mowing the lawn in a full suit. You know what I mean? Uh, and he's going to he's going to do something terrible to us. This guy didn't listen. The girl didn't come into school for a week. He went to their house to see what had happened, found the dead bodies and went home and didn't tell anybody. Whoa. Yeah, isn't that fucking crazy? And it's like, that guy seems like the truest villain of this story to me, even more than John List. Like, I can't deal with these dead bodies, goodbye. You know, just this, like, completely ridiculous high school drama teacher who had an inappropriate relationship with the teenage daughter. Oh, just God. like I didn't realize he had discovered the bodies. I, I knew the, about the, the daughter confiding in him that she thought her father might do something crazy, but... Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Just was like, okay, bye. And didn't tell anybody. It's a, it's a completely crazy story. And then he was eventually caught um, America's most wanted. He was one of America's most wanted, most famous catches. I believe it was his wife that was like, Hey, that appears to be my husband, you know, who I met right around that time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You kind of see a picture of your husband on TV (laughs) stating that he murdered his family. You're probably going to pick up the phone and call John Walsh as soon as possible. I'm not sure it was her. It was somebody recognized him virtually immediately. And when he was asked about it, he was like, I just assumed I would get caught right away. It, It really surprised me that nobody ever came to get me. Yeah, it's very strange. You should know he's not not really a serial killer. He murdered his family, but he's what's called a he's what's called a family annihilator, which is something we'll talk about in the context of this. Right. But there was a very strong religious bent, obviously, like a hardcore Lutheran. And he really thought like, I can't support my family anymore. You know, so the only correct thing to do to like keep them away from like the, the sins and vices of the world when we're poor and like, you know, homeless is to just annihilate them. Yeah. And and he was supposed to kill himself. And then at the end was like, you know what? I'm not into that. It's a mortal sin. I can't do it. It's a nice loophole for me there. <laughs> you know what? I'm 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 the I'm, suffering one here. I'm gonna I'm gonna skip the suicide part of the murder suicide. I've thought it through, and and it seems like the murder was enough for me. <laughs> so, Donald Westlake uh, heard about this story, and then what happens there? Well, or was it first, was it Westlake? Yeah, first Brian Garfield, the author of, of Death Wish. Yes, very interesting writer. Very, very interesting writer. Yes, and he and Wes wrote a great Western together, um, Gangway. And he so he hears about the story from his editor, who basically says, you should write a fictionalized version of this as a book, as a novel. And um, Garfield found it all too grisly to do that. He he thought, "Uh, but maybe this would be a good movie, actually. I don't know if I want to write a novel, but 
Um, at that point, he'd had success with the film versions of Death Wish and Hopscotch, and he figured, you know, okay, he's got a relationship with Hollywood. I'm going to make this into a movie. Uh, comes to write the screenplay, and he still feels a little too squeamish about writing it. Yeah. So he reaches out to his his buddy, Donald friggin' Westlake, and Westlake is hesitant. And I can imagine why the last three adaptations of his books would have been uh, Hot Stuff, Jimmy the Kid, and Slayground, probably the three oh, worst movies made from Donald Westlake books. Slayground is like, if you're an, an author and they make Slayground out of your book, it's just like, it's it's the most... <laughs> It's just like the most nightmare. It's like it's as a novelist, it's hard to imagine a more nightmarish violation of what you've done than to make that movie out of that book. It's one of those books, too. That's like, how do you fuck this up? I mean, this is practically a screenplay already. It's so action packed and fun. How do you fuck this up? And they fucked it up amazingly. Um, So he was jaded with Hollywood. But like I said, West uh, Garfield basically ekes out a deal. Where he has total creative control, you know, and he and he not Garfield Westlake, no Garfield. Oh, sets okay. the deal up for Westlake. Oh, okay. Okay. And says to convince him, he says, "I'll make sure that you your your screenplay is not messed with." And so Westlake comes up with this concept of you know not just telling that story, but like where does this guy go from there, right? And yeah. he comes up with this whole idea of like, well, he goes and he creates a new family for this man to marry into, including a stepdaughter who is um, kind of based on his own difficult relationship with his stepdaughter at the time. He had been married twice and had like four kids already and then married a woman with three kids of her own, sort of a Brady Bunch scenario for Westlake. Yeah. And uh, one particular daughter was just having lots of, you know, personal issues and just was not, uh, he could, he felt like he couldn't reach her, you know? So he had kind of brought that into it in the form of a a stepdaughter character who's going to be the the hero of the, the piece. Uh, it still takes five or six years to get this movie made. And then when it's shot in 1985, it takes another two years to actually release it. But when it finally comes out, uh, directed by Joseph Rubin, as you mentioned, uh, it's a hit and it's a fun thriller. And it's when you look back at it, because we kind of take for granted now with all the serial killer thrillers and things like that, it was pretty unique of its time. I mean, for what it was, I mean, it was, of course, you know, in the midst of the slasher movie films, the Friday the 13th, the Halloweens, yeah. the Nightmare on Elm Street's. But it's a really singular kind of movie and like a really great just portrait of of a, a madman in yeah. Blake, the character that's based on uh, the John character. Yeah. And it wasn't a huge theatrical hit like some horror movies. It was very well reviewed uh, for what it was, although Ebert famously did his like, why is there violence in this movie review that he loved in that era? Um and but it was like a huge video hit. It was like a huge VHS video store hit is where it became sort of it, it blew up. It was sort of very much the, the kind of cult movie of that era. And uh, I think when I when I look at it in terms of Westlake, it really fits in with works like The Axe. Right. It fits mm-hmm. into that kind of um hard edge story about middle class suburban anxieties. It, it's sort of more than uh, anything else he uh, he did. The Parker books don't feel like, oh, I'm seeing uh, Westlake's face in any way. This movie and the acts do feel personal, as you mentioned. They do feel like what are what are Donald Westlake's anxieties? Well, I think you see them in The Stepfather and The Axe. I think it's about trying to get hired and competing for jobs and feeling like you're not good enough and how far would you go? Uh, and 
trying to hold a family together and be seen as respectful and live the American dream in some way. And and he was, when you said he's a New York writer, he's like an upstate New York writer. It should be pointed out as much as he's like a gritty New York City writer. That's not really what he's doing. He's talking about Hudson and places like that in Connecticut. He he tends to, to have those type of stories, Connecticut just being an annexed section of upstate New York and something devoid of its own personality. But um but he's that kind of uh, of a writer. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, of course, he knows New York and it's wobbly George Washington Bridge and whatnot as well. But, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely correct. But let's not get too far ahead because we'll, we'll yes. get to this movie. But tell me, Chris, tell me about this movie audition by Takeshi Miike. What's that all about? Well, I'll tell you about Miike is what I'll do, not about audition. Is what I'll tell do me about this guy, Miike. <laughs> um... Takeshi Miike is a Japanese filmmaker who started working in the 90s, um, and he uh, worked in what's known as V-Cinema. This is like the less regulated direct-to-video um, Japanese uh, movies. It's their version sort of direct-to-video, but it's specifically famous for there's very little censorship. There's sort of that that wall that existed in America. America had blockbuster video, which was famously uh, aligned with Christian fundamentalists and had very hard R ratings on things. Soft R ratings, hard rules on soft R ratings, wouldn't stock any in NC-17. So it was a, like, as the most major chain, it was a de facto censorship organization. V-Cinema didn't have that. They didn't have a blockbuster. So it's sort of like if there was no wall between cinema and pornographic level sex and violence, right? Uh, that's sort of what G V cinema was. And he came up in that um, in the early in the early 90s is when he started. He came up in that atmosphere, right? This sort of uncensored atmosphere of extremity. And what he was most famous for early in his career was being insanely peripheral insanely prolific he directed so many movies between um when he gets going in like 95 and when this movie is directed in 99 he's directing five to seven movies a year really and he keeps up at that pace for a very long time it's sort of almost inconceivable that he's making these many movies very george simonon-esque sort of level of production i would say for that uh audition was one of seven movies he directed in 1999 he also directed man a natural girl that's the title one movie ley lines silver dead or alive salaryman kentaro Man, next natural girl, 100 Nights in Yokohama, right? Or in Girls versus Vampire. So he directed also Dead Alive is another one of his most famous movies. And, and Salaryman Kentaro or White Collar Worker Kentaro, as it's also sometimes known, are also... Um, very famous uh, movies. And some of these were TV works. Some of these are direct-to-video works. Some of them are theatrical releases. It's sort of a mix of things that he's doing. But what he was famous for was really being part of this Japanese era of extreme Japanese cinema, sort of. Uh, I think that uh, he, he belongs to uh, an era of Japanese cinema that was famous for the fucked up shit coming out of Japan, right? And he was sort of notorious for making the most fucked up shit coming out of Japan. He was, he would, that was sort of his badge of honor. Um, 
He slowed down eventually by the time of 13 Assassins in 2010. Uh, he's doing uh, like maybe two movies a year. Uh, more recently, he's mainly been doing TV for the past few years, and, but even slowed down. It's like two movies a year or like TV, TV type movie and a movie every year. Even when he's slowed down, he's still working a lot. He's sort of slowed down to a pace that would be a very prolific pace for most filmmakers. So I'd say that's sort of the... Um, the the uh the the basics of Mieke are insanely prolific fucked up shit right i remember seeing an interview with him uh, i think it was eli roth who at the end of the interview was like a 10 minute interview you were they were says well thank you mr Mieke, for talking to us lord knows you probably could have made three movies while we were talking <laughs> <laughs> that's like the um alfred hitchcock george simonon anecdote where hitchcock went to simonon's house for a uh, a meeting and the uh, the housekeeper, the maid, whoever was like, oh, he's writing a, a book, right? Uh, he's writing right now. He's working on a book. Uh, he can't see you. And Alfred Hitchcock that sat down and said, that's all right. I'll wait till he's finished. <laughs> Good one, Hitch. <laughs> that's a that's a charming story. Um, audition, I would say, is is interesting because movies like dead or alive and again we're always spoiler on these podcasts dead or alive is like a kind of um the provocations can be very puerile ishii the killer uh it has a kind of like come drenched piercing extreme sex and violence kind of attitude uh there's a kind of um to his work in this era, there's a real immaturity to things like, you know, Full Metal Yakuza or Ley Lines. They sort of have um, a punk aesthetic, but sort of like the snotty, eternal, juvenile rejection of the world punk, punk aesthetic, in addition to like the hairdos and the leather and the piercings and the, the penchant for sort of nihilistic violence. There, There is a sort of like snotty, fucked upness to his work in this era. And Audition is interesting. It's the first movie I saw of his, and and it's very, very different than his other movies of this era. And I would say is one of the few movies that presages what he would become as a mature filmmaker when he's able to do a movie like the remake of Harakiri and have it be a 3D spectacle remake, but do it justice. You know, it's not as good as Kobayashi's film, which I think is one of the greatest films ever made. I think it's in the running for the greatest Japanese film of all time. And I think if if Kurosawa didn't make the greatest Japanese film of all time, then Kobayashi did with Harakiri. Um, and um and and Mieke does it justice you know and Mieke does a, a couple of remakes like 13 assassins that sort of do justice to their source material and as he gets older um he's still you know he's still going to make zebra man 2 or whatever but he also shows a side of being a more mature interesting filmmaker as he goes on as he gets more into stuff like the zatoichi remake or or izu or izo and you know he just he becomes a not necessarily a consistently more mature filmmaker but shows he's capable of it and i would say that audition is the first inkling of that i would say that audition is is the first one that sort of gives you a sense of he's capable of doing something other than a movie where like somebody's you know fucking their mom and then committing a murder 
You know what I mean? Like he's yeah. capable of something more than just like a guy with no legs because they've been hacked off, uses a bazooka to blow up an entire building and the blood splurts out of the guy's head and spells something on the ground. You know, that kind of stuff, you know? Right, right. No, Which is no, awesome. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> no machine guns are going to flip out of someone's vagina and kill 20 people for sure. Yeah. Um, it's it's funny that, that to think about audition in looking at his 100 plus film and television movies, you know, that it's by far his most famous film. It's, I would say audition is the most iconic, one of the most iconic films of the last 25 years. It's certainly in the horror genre. I don't even know what would be second place. Yeah. It's just weird that he has this one film that is such a highlight uh, and, and one that everybody knows. And he doesn't even have a second film. That's like, you know, of course people know Ichi the killer. People know happiness of the cat of curries, uh, what have you, but like, there's just not a film that has reached has, has just broken through like in, in culture, the way that audition has for him. And it's funny because he was, a, he's, he made just like one of three or four films he made that year. Seven, um, seven movies. He made. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, released that year. That's crazy. Yeah. And right. also what's also crazy about audition is because it was the first one to break through for him and for an international audience. This is sort of like the movie that breaks him from being only known in Japan and probably not even known in Japan uh, to being sort of an internationally known filmmaker and icon. What's very strange about it is it's a horror movie and it's, he's so associated with the horror genre that he gets to direct a masters of horror episode, right? One that's so controversial. It's never aired uh, called imprint this is the only horror movie he made really he doesn't make horror movies he's not a horror director and yet he's so closely associated with the horror genre well, because what of this call movie. Is, is a horror movie yes that's fair that's fair and i was as soon as i said that i was like he's made 100 movies there's probably five horror movies in, in there <laughs> that I'm forgetting, but he's really not. Uh, so, you know, and like, how are you going to classify Gozu, you know, is that a horror movie, but he's not yeah. a pure horror director like those masters of horror guys who made their bones in the horror genre and were real horror guys. He's not that he's, mm -hmm. he's a weirdness director. He's an Asian extremity director, which is different than being, um, which is different than being a straight horror director. And I, I wanted to ask, ask you I, I was thinking about this and this will be a good segue um to contextualize these movies like where did audition exist sort of within v cinema versus where stepfather was in late 80s horror and sort of like what are the comparisons between v cinema and late 80s horror to you because i think that's an interesting context for these films that is interesting i mean Stepfather comes out amid the kind of slasher craze of the 80s and Audition comes out when the J-horror genre is really kicking off and movies like Ring and, um, wow, it's been The Eye. Grudge, yeah. yeah grudge, exactly. Dark Water, yeah. Yeah, and like I said, he he made a J-horror movie. He made One Miss Call and it's the best J-horror movie in my opinion. <laughs> when he wants to you know dip into it, he's going to do it great, obviously. But yeah, I could, could see classifying him as a horror director or being, it would be like, if they invited David Lynch to be a masters of horror, it's like, okay, well, I, I don't really think of him specifically as a, there are horrific things in his <laughs> films for sure. But yeah, it's more like just surreal, crazy shit that is kind of unparalleled by anything else. And audition is definitely, definitely stands very far away from that kind of movie, that kind of straight up 
revitalizing like the classic Japanese ghost story that they were doing in the late nineties and the early aughts, the same way that the stepfather really doesn't fit in with like a slasher category at all. It's much more of like a domestic horror film than anything. Both of these films, I think could be defined as like more domestic horror films than anything else. And identity horror films more than anything. And they're also surprisingly tasteful movies in an era when tastelessness ruled the, the mm. where in an era and place where the tastelessness was sort of the like the reviews of late 80s horror movies are like this genre is exhausted these films are grotesque they're just about empty violence and cool kills they, they there's really a nihilism to the uh, excesses of this movie and it's the stepfather is like almost a psychological thriller. It was originally marketed as a psychological thriller. Like there's a, there's a, there's a tastefulness to it, even as it is, um, I think more disturbing than a Freddy or a Jason movie of that era. It's certainly more disturbing than the horror show, which wants to go far, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing with audition where it's, both more tasteful than a lot of the movies surrounding it, you know, like Frankenstein girl or whatever, you know, all of those, I can't even remember just sort of like (laughs) the tentacle porny, you know, machine gun leg, you know, type of films that were so popular in Japan in that era. Um, The thing, the thing everyone remembers about audition is a five to 10 minute sequence in a two hour movie yeah, um, that happens towards the end. Well, I was going to say, but it is, it's both more tasteful and more disturbing than those movies. And I think Mm -hmm. the same is true of the stepfather where it exists in an era that's sort of like gone too far in some way, but it's both more tasteful and more upsetting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, stepfather opens with that, you know, horrific scene of, you know, massacre and blood all over the walls. And I could see someone watching that Roger Ebert or whoever and saying, okay, I'm out. You know, I don't want to watch any more of this fucking movie, but that's not setting the tone of the film. That's just, you know, making you kind of anticipate what could happen to the other heroes, which is something audition does as well. You know, like there is horrific imagery, but it's, and it's, it could be called excessive, like, like audition is, but it's in service of a larger artwork. I think both yeah. of them kind of could be defined that way, even though that's what people remember them for <laughs> are the more extreme moments, obviously. Yeah, well, they're pretty unforgettable. And what's John take us through the uh, the plot of the stepfather? For those who haven't seen it, as always, everything will be spoiled because we are adults speaking thoughtfully and critically and seriously about art, not babies trying to be part of your consumer guide. You know, thumbs up, thumbs down, five stars, bullshit. We'll we'll make a compromise. I will not spoil Stepfather Two for anybody. <laughs> it's an I, impossible to spoil movie, John. I will let you have your surprises by viewing that film on your own. In the Stepfather, we've got Susan, who is a uh, woman who's lost her husband and has a sixteen-year-old daughter named Stephanie. They live in the suburbs of Seattle, and Susan has just recently married Jerry Blake, who is a recent arrival and a real estate agent in the area. They uh, seem to get along great. She clearly loves him. But Stephanie is very suspicious of him. She refuses to open up to him. Um, She has her own kind of problems going on at school. She's always getting in trouble, getting into fights, having uh, her grades are terrible. And uh, Jerry reaching out to her just is not something she's interested at the time. Uh, She even has a psychiatrist that she goes to. 
uh, just to talk about like her, you know, behavioral issues, but also to talk about Jerry because there's just something about him that's off and she doesn't like what you all you, you assume is just regular teenage girl stuff, not trusting the stepfather, that old, that old uh, chestnut, but she's absolutely right. You know, something I always like to think about is the, um, the movie Taken, the, the Liam Neeson film, right? Yeah. Where he tells the, his uh, daughter who's, you know, what a late teens is going to go on a, like a trip, a group trip to Europe and Liam Neeson's like, don't go. Something terrible is going to happen to you. And she's like, and everyone, including, you know, his ex-wife, Famke Jensen is like, get off her back. Are you kidding? She'll be fine. You're paranoid. And then she gets kidnapped by like an international slave ring. The second she steps out, like the minute she <laughs> lands there and it's always just like, oh, come on. Like that, that level of paranoia just getting paid off. I can't believe it. But St- Stephanie is a similar situation where, uh, we, the audience, have seen Jerry under the guise of uh, Henry Morrison, which, by the way, was Donald Westlake's uh, literary agent. <laughs> it was his homage to him. Uh, all these names that the uh, the Jerry Blakes uh, take are special. <laughs> uh, we've seen him um, standing in front of a mirror, shaving, changing his appearance, and then walking out of the house where all the members of the family have been horribly slaughtered. Um, and he is left there. And he has started a new family and uh, has no way of tracing him except for our, our hero, Jim Ogilvie, who is a, uh, the brother of the uh, of his former wife who he murdered, who is uh, chasing after him, trying to find him. So that's the basic setup of the movie. Uh, as we go along, you know, obviously, Stephanie starts to see even more troubling things in Jerry, uh, such as when he um, goes down to his basement to kind of scream and, and hurt things to kind of get the aggression out. She finds out about this stepfather who uh, murdered his previous family and starts to suspect that it might be him and starts doing investigations on her own. Her psychiatrist meddles in, uh, in Jerry's affairs and finds himself getting horribly killed. And um, it's just kind of a back and forth. In court. It, I mean, obviously it's sort of a, more modern version of Shadow of a Doubt, the great Hitchcock movie, the one great Hitchcock movie, <laughs> um, with the exception, obviously, that Stephanie does not love and adore her uh, stepfather. She doesn't trust him at all. But uh, it's a great psychological thriller. And I don't know if you want me to go all the way to the ending here, but... No, we'll talk about the endings when we yeah. when we get to them. Um, I, I think about this movie, it's interesting. It follows... Um, it's the year after Blue Velvet. You say it takes a little while to get uh, made it it sort of does have that blue velvet deranged kids detective story thing you know mm-hmm. like hardy yeah. boys nancy drew with her where she's trying to get to the bottom of a mystery the way that blue velvet is like you know him taking on the neighborhood mystery in suburbia mm-hmm. and finding genuinely fucked up shit within it, it has that same sort of quality and it has the same sort of white picket fence, uh, you know, flowers and manicured long setting and feeling as Blue Velvet. I think if I had to compare it to a movie, I would actually say Blue Velvet is like its closest cousin, although Ruben is not nearly as stylish uh, of a director and the story stays much more grounded in recognizable reality. But I I think they're cousins, those movies in some way. It's a good comparison. It's interesting because obviously Blue Velvet, there's this uh, sadistic role playing going on, you know, where uh, Frank is uh, torturing Dorothy and then also pretend to be like 
that he's she's from his mother or whatever you know kind of yeah. sick demented thing he's doing the big difference i think is that uh, jerry blake is so asexual in a creepy way you know like he his um but he really gets there's the scene of him really getting his getting his wife off yeah but his performance is like it's it's all performance that's the thing yeah. it's like you know he's like yes. set up himself in this role and it's so perfunctory you yeah. know and he has this ideal obviously of like the american family this isn't just a guy who's hiding because he committed a crime this is a guy who like has made it his mission to have the perfect family yeah and the, exactly. idea, the idea is that the wife will be you know cook cook for him and be dutiful and and happy to see him when he comes home from work and his daughter will be this uh a straight a student you know honor student who uh, doesn't go out with boys and will be completely pure and and, and, and virginal what is the exact <laughs> what is the exact line he says when he's sort of daydreaming the fake fantasy like she's on the student council she's a straight a student i'm very proud of her after she's right. gotten expelled and he's talking to the little girl on the swing you're right he calls her jill which is funny because it's <laughs> Jill scoling plays the plays the role um oh. but yeah yeah he you know everything is in his head he has this complete fantasy of what he wants this family to be and plays as, as a role another david lynch you know comparison you could make i guess would be firewalk with me where you know it has yeah. the, the father and laura and uh you know the the torment that she's feeling even though he has like a you know uh ward cleaver kind of you know goodness about him or um fred mcmurray kind of you know yeah. purity to him uh but but what houses a um very fucked up interior obviously yeah but there's also a great, and I want to get too ahead of ourselves, but I think this is something that uh, this movie shares with Audition. There's a great daytime nightmarish quality to it, where it's like there's lots of scenes outdoors yeah. in the middle of the day, and it just really feels like daylight itself is threatening throughout this entire movie. Maybe it's just like because you feel that the the facade of suburbia in this film is such a just a such a curtain that you know it all feels really repressive in a really interesting way. Because we don't have a lot of scenes at night. You know, he kill he hides the body of the psychiatrist at night, but like mostly it's like stuff that takes place like right in front of their house or in their living room. And even in that opening scene where in he's broad leaving, daylight. Leaving the house, yeah, with all like all the light coming in through the windows and then all the, the dark red everywhere, you know, you just have like that kind of interesting mashup of those two kind of different weird feelings. So yeah, That's not one thing about the movie. exactly the the hiding in plain sight quality of it. Well, let mm -hmm. me just go through the plot of audition real quick. It it opens with our main character in the hospital room with his wife. Uh, she's dying of something, and in fact passes away in this opening scene. Uh, it's uh, Shigeharu Oyama, and uh, Oyama is what they generally call him in it. And he is he has a young son. Uh, who's bringing up his mom like a get well thing. You know, it's one of those, it's a great bit of production design. It's some kid crap that looks like junk, but is also insanely detailed and had a lot of work put into it. It's a very great piece of production design. This like, like get well diorama or yeah, something like that. Yeah, kids get well diorama. <laughs> it jumps to seven years later and the son who's a teenager is basically like, hey dad, you need to get back out there and get married. And the dad is talking to a friend of his who's a movie producer and he's like, I don't even know how to do it. I have really specific tastes for what I want. I don't want an arranged marriage, but you know, I'm looking to get married. And the movie producer friend is like, I have an idea. 
let's make a uh, let's cast for a movie. Maybe it's a real movie, maybe a fake movie. And um, when we do the casting, you pick one of the women who comes in and auditions and you pick her. You ask her out for a drink. You tell her you like her and you find a woman that way. We'll hold fake auditions for a new wife for you. Uh, it'll be easy. It'll be a good thing to do and completely ethical. Um and so they hold these auditions, but even before they hold them, one of the resumes, one headshot uh, and questionnaire has stood out to our hero, uh, the headshot of uh, Asami Yamazaki, uh, played by Ihi Shiena, right? A uh, famous model. And, uh, and from this headshot, he's just sure she's the one. He comes in, they do a weird interview where he sort of asks... <laughs> sort of inappropriate questions. It's clear to his producer friend, this is the one. He calls her up. He asks her out on a date. Uh, he tells her he seems like he's going to confess that it's not not real, that the movie's not real, but instead is like, ah, the funding fell through, so we won't make it. His friend warns him, hey, this, this lady, she gives me a bad feeling. I've been around a lot of actresses. Let me tell you, when you got a bad feeling about one, like, uh, like stay away from them. Uh, and he ignores his friend and they go on a vacation weekend getaway together. They make love for the first time. And then that's at like the hour mark of the movie. And then the movie like splits apart at the seams at the hour mark. It's been a very regular sort of, uh, sad, tender, melodramatic type of film. It's been very domestic. It's been very low key. It's got a lot of small, interesting scenes to it. And, big emotions in quiet moments uh, leading up to this. When he wakes up in the morning after their evening together, she's gone. She's disappeared. He doesn't know where she's gone. He starts to investigate her life and he starts finding this trail of like horror and depravity and violence, missing persons, extra tongues, uh, missing feet, all kinds of bone cutting implements total terror uh and she uh he realizes she's an incredibly dangerous uh person and that she's on to him and she comes and inflicts horrific torture on him as revenge for what he's done uh and it doesn't even necessarily to be seem to be revenge for the fake movie it's more for the fakeness of his emotions and the fakeness of what he purports to be as a man and purports to be able to give her as a man and how he belongs to a lineage of men who claim love or claim something from her and don't give her in return what she wants, how she's exploited by the power structures of men around her that pretend to be loving, but are in fact just taking from her and abusing her and wrecking her, how sort of male desire is inflicted on her under the guise of love. And what I would say this movie is, is really, it's like a rape revenge story from the perspective of the rapist, right? That's sort of what's interesting about it, is the movie goes out of its way to make Ayama sympathetic. You feel sad for him when his wife dies. He seems to be a good husband. He seems to be a great father. He seems to be a reasonable, good-hearted man who has a sincere attraction and interest and a budding love for this woman. Um, 
who's done something incredibly unethical and immoral to deceive her and get what he wants, right? And so the perspective, it's like a woman scorned movie. It's like promising young woman from the perspective of the guy she's going after, right? The people that she's pretending to be drunk in front of, you know, that's what this movie is, is is it's that kind of like wronged, scorned, abused, exploited woman gets revenge movie from the perspective of the guy she's getting revenge on. And it's a very like um, shocking twist. It's still a powerful twist on that formula. Twenty-five years later, there's sort of nothing about time that's that's blunted just the impact of the basic idea of it. Um, it's a very richly ironic, thoughtfully ironic film. I would say in that way. I would agree with you. I think there's something interesting about every single scene of this movie no matter what's happening. I mean, again, yeah. the torture doesn't happen until what an hour and a half into the film. Yeah. And even leading up to that, there are just so many different ways of like unnerving us and, you know, kind of putting us out of our element, just starting off with like his relationship with his son. Yeah. Where the son is like the dad, like they have like switched roles. Like the son yeah. has like a more controlled, like, you know, a controlling kind of position in the relationship. Let me give you advice, dad. Let yeah, me tell yeah. you what you need to be doing. You're too much of a dreamer. You're too lost in yourself. Get on track. Yeah. Yeah. The early scene where they're having dinner and he kind of makes his dad feel bad and doesn't acknowledge it, just kind of walks away. And uh, yeah. Elm is just kind of sitting there at the table feeling despondent or, you know, getting it, going into his room, butting into his room without knocking, uh, giving his dinner to his girlfriend, you know, all kinds of things where it seems like, <laughs> The, the kid seems to have more dominance than the father does. And part of it obviously has to do with the fact that he's the father it's, clearly hasn't gotten even, over the death of his wife. I don't know if it's dominance. Just, it's like a confidence and vitality his dad doesn't have. His dad feels sure, like sure. hollowed out and his son still feels like alive and wise and sort mm -hmm. of in charge of things. But you're absolutely right. I'm just quibbling about the words for it. No, yeah. It's like, you know, I, I'm he's not mean to his dad. It's a loving relationship. No, no, no. It's Definitely. a loving no, no, relationship. It's a very, yeah. no, it's a very wholesome, nice relationship that we see yeah. on screen. But it's, it's it's different, you know, than like yeah. you usually see in the film. And obviously it stems a lot from Aoma having difficulty living without a wife, living without a woman. They have a maid who comes in and, or not a maid, but I guess a cook who comes in and yeah. does does like the dinner for them, makes dinner for them. Uh, he has a secretary who is constantly trying to tell him that she's getting married and you know, these big things are happening and he practically ignores her. Like, like I mean, those there. scenes are so great because it's, they're, they're so well directed because you get the backstory without it ever being explicitly said uh, in those scenes that I'm getting married. You mean a lot to me emotionally. Something happened between us and I want you to have a reaction to me getting married. And the fact that you don't have any reaction and just say congratulations is destroying me. It's hollowing me out. And it's really, it's really amazingly well-directed and subtle in a way that's, that's great. It's made explicit later on when the movie gets explicit in all ways, but the early going scenes, it's, it's like, it's like an Ozu movie or something mm -hmm. in the early going scenes, just about like everyday sadness, you know? Yeah. yeah that's terrific. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the the two main characters. Who are who are the two main characters? What do you think of them? What are they like? Describe them to me. Get just dig into the characters a little bit that the film revolves around. 
So, our, okay. So as you said, our two main characters are, uh, well, the first one is Ayama, who, as I mentioned, is having difficulty kind of getting over his wife's death all these years later and doesn't really know how to approach a woman. It pretty much is completely social, socially inept at this point. Yeah. Uh, that he had to set up this whole fake audition. But kind of right from the outset, his producer friend obviously thinks of the whole thing as a joke, you know, like a funny thing that he's doing. Um, doesn't kind of recognize the kind of chauvinist, you know, aspect behind it, which is practically a crime. But even Aoma at the beginning is saying, um, we could get arrested for this, you know. Yeah. This, this is not the right thing to do. Um, and he immediately has this ideal of, you know, what he wants in a woman. He picks out uh, from the headshots um, Asani, Asami, right? He immediately yeah. sees her as like the woman that he wants her to be. And we'll get into this big time, but it's like, you know, his projection of what he wants kind of dominates the rest of the film and kind of fractures the reality of the film in really interesting ways. But she comes up, she comes around, she's dressed in, in white and virginal white. She's completely demure and uh, submissive and just the, you know, the the cutest little dormouse you've ever seen, the cutest little wallflower. (laughs) Um, But in a way that also feels, you know, like an insulting portrait of a of a grown woman you know yeah. so you're immediately thinking like this is his ideal that we're looking at here we're looking at you know a woman who is just going to be like a little like a good little wife to him yeah she's tender and seems to need to be protected and wants him to protect her you know that kind of 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 timidity mm-hmm. and openness somebody who's open hearted in need of love that kind of feeling to her exactly you know? And Ayama, who's been completely quiet during the rest of the audition while this producer is like asking women about like their first sexual experience and if they would ever, you know, disrobe on film and all these like horribly unsensitive, insensitive questions. Uh, Ayama finally pipes up when she sits down in front of them when Asami arrives and all he's doing is immediately saying, I read what you wrote. And so here's what I think. And he's basically like putting out there like, this is the kind of woman I think you are. Yeah. You know, let me tell you questions. about you. <laughs> let me explain, let me describe who you are. To, and her responses are like, Oh, thanks. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you <know>? Sure. <laughs> who are the, and who are these two actors? Cause these are, these are interesting actors. Uh, well, Aoma is played by uh, Ryo Ishibashi and Asami's played by, uh, you said it before and I'm going to mess it yeah, up. Yeah. I can't say I fuck. Ahishina. As yeah. you said, she is a, a well-known model. And Ishibashi is uh, known for being in films like Suicide Club, the uh, Sion Sono film. He's in the Grudge movies. You know, he's did a lot of. Uh, oh, yeah. another Lonely Hitman is a is a good Yakuza movie that not a lot of people know of. Yeah, that's one of in. our favorites. And he was yeah. in he was in a band, but he was sort of known as like an aging rock star type. I get the sense it's a little bit like if you put rod stewart in this movie or something like somebody who was seen as like you know like like downtown train era rod stewart like somebody who was seen as like sexy when he was younger who sort of still got it but is on the way out of it whatever like (laughs) rock star charisma is he's sort of and that kind of like lame too i think he was a a little bit of a um of a again a rod stewart little bit of a a dorcas malorcas figure you know (laughs) yeah i mean it's it's funny, like I have such ignorance to like, you know, Japanese celebrity, uh, even from that time. But like, it seemed to me that every single movie star over there, like learned to like be an actor, 
and also had a side gig as an international <laughs> pop star at the same time. Yeah. Like they all like are like just as famous for their music in Japan as they are, you know, for their film roles. So it's it's interesting. Even Jackie Chan had like yeah. albums and was like a singer and everything. Not Japanese, obviously, but you know, from that area of the world. So it's uh it's always weird to me to like learn that, oh, this actor that I like in this movie is like a heartthrob over there as well. Yeah. <laughs> All the girls will like chase him down the street. Not sure yeah. if uh, that's what happened with Ishibashi or not at any point, but maybe he's like the guy from, um, oh no, I can't think of the film, the, uh, the film we saw in Toronto. What? David Bowie? <laughs> <laughs> what movie are you talking about? The last movie we saw with the uh, former uh, pop star. Oh, loving uh, and, and, Music, love and mathematics. Jesus Christ, <laughs> love and mathematics. Love and mathematics was the name of that movie. Yeah, if he's that, if he's that type. Yeah, it's always hard to judge. Like, how big were any of these bands? Actually, um, I also do want to mention the friend, the movie producer you mentioned is played by um, June Kinemura, who I always think of as being like Miyake's guy because he's in this and Ishii. And those are like the first two I saw and they're kind of Miyake's biggest films. But Americans probably know him best as um, the, the the mob boss, Boss Tanaka and Kill Bill is probably what he's best known as. And it's worth mentioning that both Tarantino and, as you mentioned, Eli Roth, his buddy Eli Roth, are big Miyake fans. Tarantino has a fairly large role in Sukiyaki Django Western, fairly large and terrible role. It's truly awful. Even being knowing what they're going for and being sympathetic, you should watch a clip of it just to be like, oh my God. And um, Miyake has a, yeah, Miyake has a cameo in Hostel, um, the E. Rivas breakthrough movie Hostel, uh, and where a lot of the costuming in Hostel seems to have been inspired by Asami's outfit at the end of Audition, I think is fair to say as well, that, yeah. that Hostel has a very strong Miyake and audition flavor to it. Um, the in Stepfather, the main actor, uh, the main character, the main deal, the whole show is Terry O'Quinn as Jerry Blake, aka the man with no name, the true man with no name, the man with a million names, the man whose name we never know in this movie. And Terry O'Quinn. The sweater game. As we said, he's based on John List, family and Ali. Do we? Here's a question for you. Here's a question for you. Do we think, honestly, that one sweater is supposed to be inspired by Nightmare on Elm Street? Do you believe that where he's wearing the red and black sweater walking out of the front of the house to the mailbox? Do you I mean, think that it, it's something that always gets said about it? Do you think that's true? It is the Freddy sweater, but who knows? I don't, I don't know. It's not because Freddy's red and green. Hmm. Okay. So it's not exactly the Freddy sweater. I don't know what I believe about it. It definitely it, it definitely bothers me that it's taken <laughs> as gospel that it's supposed to be a reference to Nightmare on Elm Street. Let, I think it's just a sweater. About, let me say this real quick about Terry O'Quinn. Yeah. Um, because it's crazy to think back about this, but uh, I thought he died like right after the Stepfather 2. I don't know why. I <laughs> really? I don't know why, where I got that information, but I love the Stepfather and I was like, oh, it's too bad that uh, Terry O'Quinn died. And you know, won't be in anything else. So when I saw Lost for the first time, yeah, it was literally like reacting like a Shakespeare character who sees his friend, his dead friend, you know, sitting at the yeah. table. Like I literally freaked the fuck out. I couldn't <laughs> believe 
you freaked you freaked so out confused. you freaked out like there was a newspaper article about your murders and you went down to the basement that's how much you freaked out right <laughs> i absolutely freaked <laughs> out because it was literally like seeing a ghost on the screen i was i was so convinced i don't know why i was so convinced that he had died but i have a heart attack or something but i was like certain so it's crazy because it's <laughs> with th- with this movie and john locke and lost he gives two of the most amazing iconic performances of all time i've always felt like he should have brian cranston's career they should be switched you know like he's he or not switched but he should have that level of like this guy is obviously one of the best there is and instead he's like a character actor also ran who doesn't who didn't really it felt like why why does why does he not have that kind of let's put him in some Oscar bait and see if anybody bites kind of career. Let's, let's cast him as Trumbo. Let's cast him as Waldo salt and salt, you know, like, why don't we, you know, let's, why doesn't he have that kind of career? And as we've mentioned it a few times, his basement freak out in this movie is, is genuinely amazing. It's one of the most disturbing scenes you will ever see in a film. And it's basically just an actor being observed. It's basically, she get the daughter goes down to the basement to get some, ice cream and he comes down without knowing she's down here there's been a newspaper article and he's flipping out about it flipping out talking to himself and it's genuinely terrifying you're as scared for her as you will ever be for a character in any movie you don't you know what he's capable of you don't know what's going to happen you don't know what the next move for it is and it's and it's all the performance it's 1000 percent this performance uh and it's it's really great it's and funny and put the mask back on too when he turns yeah. to look at her says hi honey you know, we like, all need to blow off some steam you know how it is being a realtor have to put on a fake smile for everybody terrence rafferty's review of this movie is one of the all-time great film reviews and the and the phrase he uses about him blowing off some steam is he calls him a nuclear family reactor which ah, i think is a fucking there's so actually this will be a good patreon i will read that review for patreon subscribers just so you can listen to it it's one of my all-time favorites and there's a lot i'll sort of reference as we go into the movie movies through this but it's it's really is just like a great great moment there's other characters jill sholin as the teenage daughter is like we can talk about it when we talk about the the teenagers and sort of how the film uses teenagers but i think she's a real um whiff and if the movie has a problem it's both her performance and the conception of that character and then the the wife the that he marries into the real mother that the stepfather marries is sort of an underdefined non-character she's just like a nice blonde lady i i couldn't think of any way to describe her beyond that could you no no but i know that lady you know yes like yes (laughs) quickly sharply etched real character you know the the daughter's supposed to be like a bit of a teen rebel but she's just like such a like sweet natured goody two-shoes type girl cast in the role and the things she gets in to do are like fighting an art class you just sort of never feel any danger to this character handprint on the teacher's back when he's not yeah there's just something about it i think it's ultimately fine because i think the movie really works and i think the movie's really really good but you definitely as a viewer i as a viewer you why am i speaking in second person eyes of viewer, the sections where it's more on her i i do have a bit of like Okay, okay, let's get back to Jerry Blake. Let's get back to the dark beating heart of this thing. 
something to the to the psychosis in the in the heart of it and the the sort of familial societal you know deranged late stage capitalismness of this movie it's not even well, anti-capitalist it's like deranged suburbanism boomer fantasy that it's in well, it's funny because, you know, she was on <laughs> Joe Bob's show again this week. Uh, she they yeah. were doing popcorn. And I, seems like a very nice human being. <laughs> I'm sure she is. But it, it seems like the kind of interesting, weird angle that a lot of horror movie fans take of like the, the, the Scream Queens and the final girl and like these interesting victim characters. And it's like. Cherry Blake is the, the stepfather. That's why you like this movie. <laughs> yeah. She's fine. But, you know. She's not the movie, even slightly, you know? Yeah. It's just like, you know, Sally Harvesty is not the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know? Yeah, not even slightly. Not even yeah. slightly. Yeah, no, he really is to, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is probably my favorite film of all time. Terry O'Quinn's performance is the entire Sawyer family in one person. <laughs> it's that level of sort of like magnitude. Um what do you think of Joel Rubin as a director? What do you think of Miyake as a director? Uh, well, Miyake obviously is his own thing. In audition, right? specifically in audition, what do you think of his work in this film? I, I think his work is superlative in audition. Like I said, every single scene is not just interesting. It is it is baffling and mysterious in interesting and weird ways, even when nothing baffling or mysterious is happening. I mean, he just, you know, it's like he's just slowly turning you know uh the ratchet and you're just getting tenser and tenser like leading up to like where is this all going and i don't know how many people got to see audition like i did like probably you did before knowing you know she gets out the wire anything crazy. nothing yeah. to know nothing about it going into this is it can't be you know you, you can never do it again you know you, you can enjoy the film watching it the, again and the again. question it sets up of what's in the bag you will never in a million years what's guess on your first yeah. on your first viewing not even and and not even what's in the sack but like why is that sack so prominently figuring into these shots i think that you're right it's super controlled watching it this time it was like it's so perfect and so controlled it's like a fucking michael haneke movie or something i kept thinking mm. the movie closest to this is seventh continent in mm. terms of style of just like family annihilation movie family annihilation you know talking about that <laughs> it just has that style to it but also the way it jumps through time in the second half and the way it shows a conversation and then goes back to it and uses different pieces to create a different impression of the conversation by showing segments of it different time. It reminded me of the limey, you know, it just had a fascinating take on how to use dialogue and time together, you know, and the scene where all the women are all bleeding together into one woman in the blowjob scene. It has that incredibly precise sense of how to use time in conjunction with narrative that really it reminded me of the limey this time there's few films that take those kind of narrative risks to create something completely coherent the way this film does and um, yeah. not just time but reality i mean yeah not, not just jumping in and out of reality but like making you question is this reality what is reality yeah and we keep bringing up lynch and i don't you know that's totally fine i think you know what people love about Mulholland Drive and, you know, it's weird perceptions of like facades and realities and things like that. This movie came first, you know, like yeah. this movie beat it to the punch by two years easily. Uh, and uh, everything that people love about that movie, I would say it, it, Miyake does even better here. I love 
One moment I love is when he's uh, investigating. He like goes to the bar that she says she works at, which turns out it's all shut down. And there's just some, you know, there's a guy there who like lives in an apartment. And uh, <laughs> guy in a little bow tie. And he reveals that because he's talking about the um, the body that got chopped up there. He mentions it's a tilted building, so like yeah. all the blood, like you know, ran down the floors of this tilted building. And that's when you realize, like, oh shit, this angle has been tilted the entire time I've been watching this. Yeah, I feel like these characters are going to fall over. Yeah, you know, I love mentioning Lynch. I love, love, love this movie's fake. It was all a dream fake out that's still unresolved by the time you get to the end is it it it, it makes no clear distinction of uh, is the it was all a dream thing real or was the it was all a dream uh, within a fake out you know it doesn't it doesn't make clear distinctions on the reality it's sort of open-ended non-linear in the sense of the the narrative appears to sprout into two different places and exist in two parallel realities at the same time, like the end of Mulholland Drive, where you sort of have this different reality sprouting off that doesn't seem to be supplanting the reality, but coexisting with it in some way. Is he waking up from a nightmare or is he waking up from a dream back into a a nightmare reality? (laughs) Yeah. What is actually going? And I love it. I love to like just just very tight script, very, very tight script Um, with Stepfather, though. I think it's a film as a film. It's of no distinction except for the writing and Terry Quinn's performance. Don't you agree that that's true? Do you think that there's any sort of uh, distinction to the filmmaking in it beyond those two elements? It's competently made. And, you know, Joseph Rubin, for sure. Uh, I like Joseph Rubin. I like Sleeping with the Enemy, you know, his uh, kind of follow-up thriller, I think. Which is one of the in the movies that I felt like Audition is an inverse of, Sleeping with the Enemy. Sleeping yes. with the Enemy. That's yeah. one of the movies that that like Audition is an inverse of. Is What if it's from the perspective of the abusive husband? It's Patrick Bergman. Is that who the uh, abusive husband is? Patrick Bergen, yeah. Patrick Bergen, yeah. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Go on. No, no, no. Like uh, Sleeping with the Enemy, True Believer. You know, these are, you know, films that are very well made, very competently made. You know, kind of comes from a cool exploitation background when he made films like The Sister-in-Law, The Palm Bound Girls, The OG Joyride, you know, like movies that are fun to watch. And he's clearly got like a good uh, sense of timing. He has, you know, he's, he's also good at ratcheting up the tension to like an appropriate level. Obviously, when things come down to uh, Terry O'Quinn, uh, to Jerry Blake, having his total breakdown where he says, who am I here? You know, yeah. it's a very tense, very well done scene. And uh, yeah, I think that Joe Rubin is, uh, he's a okay in my book. I, there's nothing that distinguishes him necessarily, or he doesn't have much voice in this film. It's all West. Like I agree with that. I but, think uh, he's, I, I think, think he, I think he doesn't get in the way either. You know? Yeah. I, I would say he's far from a talent list director, but he's exactly the reason the French new wave wanted to make a distinction between competent directors and authors, right? Like this, he's the reason the auteur theory exists sure. is to say like, not him is like why it exists and it's fucked up it's it's really unfair when you stop and think about it because he's directed a bunch of interesting movies it's sort of what happens with Jacques Tourner where it's like this like this is a really well directed fantastic movie you get no credit for it you know that kind of thing I think but I also was thinking too like I think a movie has to be made by a non-or tour to be a legit cult movie I think if you 
uh, are an auteurist, that it's no longer a cult film, that it can be a cult director in some way. But if you if you're finding the movie through the auteur, it feels like it disqualifies true cult status in some way from me. You know what I mean? Yeah, it feels yeah, yeah. like it feels like something different, which is why I think of this movie as a true cult movie. You know, a movie that was sort of found by an audience post facto and and sort of beloved beyond people aren't loving it because they're Terry O'Quinn fans. They're not loving it because they're Joseph Rubin fans. They're not loving the Jill Schoen fans. They're sort of loving it because it's this great movie that that's welled up out of nowhere, you know? But you gotta but you gotta be careful with that too, because that's why people praise Slaughterhouse or what the fuck. (laughs) That's true. And it's and when I think of the things that I like in this movie that are really good, like we said uh, they're the writerly moments, like the way in the opening scene, he picks up the sailboat and puts it in the toy chest, like to as he's leaving the house, like, oh, I'm the dad. I got to have my house in perfect order. Mm-hmm. I love my family, you know, got this. And then we go downstairs and see the slaughtered family in the chaos of the living room. That's a great writerly conceit. You know, the toy box putting away and then seeing the slaughtered family, you immediately understand everything about the schism within this guy. Every single thing about this character you understand instantly in that moment, right? And that's that's all the writing, you know? That's completely the writing. Another good writerly idea I love is at the end when um, the brother... Uh, his brother was murdered, one of the people murdered in that first scene. He's trying to find his sister. No he, yeah, he's on to Jerry Blake. The scene where he interrupts the woman leaving, waiting for the cab driver, right? Interrupts like the couple in the midst of a breakdown. A, because it's a demonstration of how families break apart for one. We're seeing before our eyes the kind of instability that drives Jerry Blake crazy happening in real time, the dissolution of a family, right? So it's hitting on the theme, but it's also just like a good writerly idea. Like what happens in this scene? He asks about Jerry Blake, gets told the address. That's not interesting. That's the scene that's in the boring movie. What can I do as a writer to make this scene interesting? It's just such a writerly idea for how to make that scene interesting. I I fucking love it. And I feel like a lot of the interesting stuff in the movie are writerly ideas, um, as opposed to audition, where I feel like the directing feels like just phenomenally powerful directing, you know, just like the book that audition is based on. No. Is it translated in English? I don't know. I've never read it myself, so I, uh, I'd be curious. Yeah, it's never even occurred to me to read it. I don't mm. know why. It's just never even occurred to me. Um, one more thing I contrast between the two movies as far as the style of the filmmakers. If you listen in the early going to the use of cheesy sentimental music cues in both of them both of them have very sort of overtly sentimental music cues in the early going Mm -hmm. and the ones in audition are so much more carefully chosen and create such a better texture and mood of both sadness and dread compared to the ones in the stepfather which are just like okay this is a happy day happy music kind of thing you know like this is idyllic day and i think that that to me demonstrates the difference in the filmmakers and the filmmaking you know in the direction and the filmmaking to me just like listen to those music cues and you'll immediately say this is a real director here and this is a guy over here yeah yeah this is a replacement level director (laughs) well when you just compare you know the climax of the 
stepfather when obviously you have your usual horror stings in the score and things like that to the torture scene in audition which is completely silent and chills you right to the bone yeah you know i think the competence levels of the directors are right there you know one of them is you know an artist working well beyond his peers you know so talk to me about uh, about what you were you were going to say uh, about fantasy and presentation and all that kind of stuff talk to me what were you thinking about that well well let, let me let me let me go into it this way what two characters would you compare to each other you've said that you know having uh aoma being you know the hero is almost like the, the sleazy heat uh, sex pest, you know, being the main character. <laughs> Obviously, you you would be tempted to compare him most to Jerry Blake, right? Yeah, the the villain of the step the stepfather, because they both have this idealized idea of family and of you know relationships. Yeah, and they create, I think, fantasies. I think my big take on audition, which a lot of people, my take, a lot of people have had this take, but <laughs> it is you know that. The fractured reality could very well be, you know, his his psyche, you know, like his inability to handle women or know how to put them in or his is his predilection to put them into roles that they don't necessarily fill has like warped his reality so much that the actual reality around him is falling apart. Yeah. That, uh, the monster version of, uh, of Asami is, you know, comes out of his own feelings of inadequacy and guilt and his inability to to properly treat a woman like yes. a person. Yes, both movies are about our fantasies of family life and the reality of fantasy life, the tension between those things, right? That's what both movies are about. It's like, what do we fantasize being married and a father will be versus the reality of it? I think yeah. it's also interesting that both films picked, it's a widow and a widower, right? They're not divorced. There's not another family hanging in the background. There's a, a literal void there. There's a person that was there and is now gone for these, um, these replacement parts to fill into i think that's a very interesting mm -hmm. and pointed choice that to make it a, a real empty space in their lives you know that that sort of their conception of wholeness is missing a piece they haven't rejected that and wanting to change it's been taken away from them in both cases which i think is very pointed and i think that's what makes it different than a lot of the familial interloper movies like Teorama or Knife in the Water or something like that, which are about driving a wedge between, you know, sitcom, you take a family and drive a wedge between people, this interloper based on pre-existing animosities and desires and dissatisfactions. This is this is about a families that had something that's now gone and a need to replace it more than families being driven apart in some but it's way. It's interesting to bring up those movies because um, Asami is almost like a, a, an interloper from his psyche, you know, yeah. <laughs> when she comes into the film, like almost something that he created. And the same way Jerry, you know, expects Stephanie to be this pure and virginal woman. That's exactly what Aoma wants Asami to be. When she starts talking like a real person and trying to tell him about like her background and her um, history of abuse. Yeah. He can't deal with it. Like he doesn't yeah. want to have to hear that. Yeah, yeah, he's like, oh, so sorry. It. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He just wants to completely dismiss it because it doesn't line up with his, you know, you know, uh, um, submissive little wife that he wants. You yeah. Know? Like, this is a complicated person. I don't want that at all. So yeah. he's going to, like, try to recreate her. And the only way that, like, he can do it 
is as this horrible castrating, you know, uh, woman of vengeance that she becomes at the end of the film, which is yeah. kind of always interesting to hear people say like, oh, this is like a misogynist film. Like this is yeah. like women are evil. And it's like, no, I think that this um, men's fear of women can, you know, materialize into something that is crazy and evil like it does in this movie. Well, it has a complicated relationship to that stuff. I think a good, ironic, complex one. I also think what I think is interesting about these movies, when I watch them back to back, the difference between being a stepfather, right? (laughs) And she's not going to be, she's not referred to as a stepmother at all. She's the younger trophy wife and sort of that cultural distinction between the stepfather who's expected to come in and be in charge of the family and run the family, right? And being the trophy wife who's expected to come in and be below the father, right? And I think that those are cultural expectations where he's expected to come in and now have it be his family. And she's expected to come in and become part of a family, right? Yeah. And I think that's why it's interesting the way narratively they deal with. That's why we skip Jerry becoming ingratiated, right? Because it's not about him being absorbed. It's about him being in charge. So let's get to him being in charge, right? Whereas the plot of audition is all about her becoming part of the family, about the courtship, about her being selected and being brought into it and being brought on board. I think that those are both films sort of understand the difference between those roles inherently, I think is an interesting contrast in them as far as their ideas about like how a replacement family would work. Yeah, absolutely. And again, the kind of son having a more dominant kind of role and, you know, having telling his father, you got to go get married. You got to go find a woman and bring her into the house. You know, we, yeah. can't, we can't keep living the way we are. Cause it's not the right way to live uh, setting these ideals for like what their family should be, which is kind of a fucked up thing. When you think about like, dude, relax, you know, your father lost his wife, you know, maybe he needs more time. Maybe he's having some, uh, some, some problems, yeah. uh, but it's, you're being that, really hard on this kid. Yeah. Well, the, the thing is that they have a perfectly good relationship. Like yeah. their household is an ideal one. Like they are both clearly loving of each other. They're supporting of each other. They've gotten over this, this, uh, this tr- uh, tragic death together. And the son still is insisting like there's a woman missing. You got to bring a yeah. woman into the mix. It's got to happen when it feels like, you guys are fine. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. you, don't, you don't need that. Well, it's interesting, too, because the son serves a function. In both movies, you have the real, right? The father and son and mother and daughter, right? And the, the quote unquote fake coming in, right? To it. Um, There's also secondary characters that drive that home further in both films where you have the son has a real girlfriend in the movie. The son has a girlfriend that he's gotten in a real way for real reasons with an authentic relationship. Right. So that's a contrast. Dinosaurs, too. Yeah, that's a contrast to what his dad has. He has a real relationship with that girl. And in The Stepfather, there's a real brother. There's the brother whose sister was murdered. He has a real relationship as well, which is another secondary contrast in that film. And I think that that's interesting in both of those movies. Although, again, that that brother character who has a very like pretty even prettier boy version of Nathan Fillion quality, 
right yeah. there in his fucking Chris Evans and knives out cable knit sweaters. You know, mm. he's a, he's sort of a uh, 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 not fantastic character. And also there's something weird about repeating the trick from the shining of the woodsman deus ex machina character who shows up only to get killed. Only to get slaughtered. Yeah, it feels like you can't, the shining already did that trick and it's a very, very famous trick. You can't just do it again. Although I love his expression when he can't get the gun out quick enough. It's such yeah. an amazing moment. Like he's, he's thought about this moment. He's thought about what he's going to do. He's thought about how it's going to be perfect. And then he fucks everything up. He's like Jerry. He's lived this fantasy of what he's going to do for revenge and what it's <laughs> going to be like. And then it's not that at all. You know, yeah, and he has yeah, to become annihilated. It's going to be the huntsman uh, breaking in and saving uh, Little Red Riding Hood from the wolf. But yeah, once confronted with the wolf, he doesn't know what the fuck to do. <laughs> one of the one of the all time great. I fucked up death faces uh, right before I died faces. It's like with Lance Henriksen and hard target that whoop, it's one of the all time <laughs> great, like, ah, no kind of things. We talked a little bit about the, the trauma and abuse in these films, right? Yeah. What both characters have a history of trauma and abuse. Like what are their stories before the film begins, before they come into the movie? Right. What are, what are the stories of Jerry Blake and uh, Asami? Jerry Blake's trauma. I mean, yeah, a family. And then <laughs> no, he talks about there's illusions throughout it that he was raised. You must have been raised oh, yeah. in a pretty strict household. And he says, you could say that. And he says, I got through all my problems. And so will you to the daughter. There's like illusions to him gotcha. having an abusive childhood and her backstory finding about about Asami's extreme abuse is also a huge part of these characters, right? I forgot about that. In fact, Westlake had put in flashback sequences in his first draft of the script where we see little Jerry and yeah. his household and everything that they obviously decided to cut before they made the film. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to point out that the with the Widow Widower stuff, the disrupted families were happy families. They were families that were happy that were disrupted by their victims of life's instabilities. That life's instabilities is another phrase that I steal from Rafferty's article on it as a way of thinking about it. Um Whereas these two, the two interlopter, interlopers, the two disruptors, they had miserably unhappy families, right? They're sort of uh, um, harbingers or embodiments of the misery that family can be that these happy families have no real inkling of and no real sense of. They think that even though they've lost somebody, it's like you don't know what actual familial misery is. You know what it is to be sad and have your happiness disrupted you don't know what it's like to have never been happy like asami says is i never felt unhappiness because i was unhappy all the time right mm -hmm. it's like now you will feel unhappiness now you will feel what it's like to not know happiness from them yeah. i think is is part of what these dark clouds end up being yeah, they, and they both are interested in fulfilling roles that they clearly got from, what, television, right? I mean, yes. Like, Jerry obviously grew up watching Leave it to Beaver. and He has know, the Mr. Like Ed that. episode memorized. He's yeah. saying the punchlines as he was uh -huh. watching it. Exactly. He clearly wants, you know, to become that role, you know, as a substitution for his that own That sitcom life. family fantasy. And by picking yeah. the Mr. Ed to show, like, remember... They had talking horses on these shows, like just leave it to Beaver was bullshit. Please remember that, everybody. <laughs> and Asami, you know, uh, 
what's the name of the the fake movie is it tomorrow's heroine is that what it's tomorrow's heroine yeah yeah that she says like i could be tomorrow's heroine like she you know comes into this at least the the version everyone we're seeing she comes into this audition saying like i can fill this role for you You yeah her fantasy isn't the perfect fantasy you're right to point that out it's to be tomorrow's heroine to be this actress who embodies the hope of tomorrow is her fantasy and what is it that they say the plot of the script is a love triangle between a dancer, a patron, and a Down syndrome boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, absurd. And then she also says when they have their first night together, she said, I wanted to be in the movie, but I found something better. I'm tomorrow's heroine, but for you in real life, I'm the That's heroine it. of your story, right? Which I think shows how much she's saying you can't apply. The movies are both saying applying these fantasy spaces is is very dangerous to reality. You know, the ideal of the... I, the idea of the idyllic life, the ideal of family family is very, very dangerous because especially by people who have been poisoned by their families and abused in their childhood, it becomes like a poison they can't help spreading in some way. And for Sami, it's there's a bit of a pushback to her wanting to like fill this role because the producer, you know, and the idea of like the an audition process in general, yeah, is like to what taking yes. you a, an empty vessel and shaping you and molding you to what we want. You know, like you're here to play a role that we are going to have all the creative input onto it. Like you are completely empty, and you know we're going to fill you with what we need. And it's exactly what Iyamu does when she's there. He's where he's reading her, you know, essay that she's written and saying this is what you are like this. Yeah. This is the role I'm assigning to you as opposed to Jerry Blake, who, you know, the pushback he gets is that they won't let him fill this role. Stephanie won't let him. Yeah. But isn't it, you know, to what extent is Jerry constantly auditioning to be a good father at what he's constantly auditioning for, uh, for puppy. Yeah. Yeah. For the daughter, he's constantly auditioning. Although I think it is, it's important that the film is called the stepfather and not the new husband, you know, that it's about him auditioning for the daughter. And this, we're talking about feminine and masculine performance a little bit. His masculine performance he's being on is, being the realtor, being the father who brings home the puppy, being the father who has the perfect Thanksgiving dinner and gives her the drumstick. You know, the the ideal of masculine performance that he's putting on, I think is very interesting and can in contra- contrast to auditions ideas of feminine performance. It's not just that she's submissive. She also does ballet, right? She also does these, these things that are seen as being traditionally feminine, how she's being performing femininity for him up until the moment she lets that veil down or pulls the veil up, lets the mask down, right? They're both performing this stuff until the moments where we see the mask drop and they're utterly terrifying, you know? But it does make you think about in general, how much are any of us performing masculine and feminine roles in any of this stuff? How much of that is performance and how much of that is inherent? How much of it is inflicted on you, which you then inflict on other people? I think that it's yeah. she has the great line Um where she's talking about how she had to stop ballet because her hips got fucked up. She just got too abused by her ballet teacher, right? Um, Where uh, I can't remember who says it, if it's him or her, but it's quitting what you like is like accepting death, right? So he translates her. Yeah, Yeah, he says it, but he says it like it's a good thing, 
right? Like the way I have to accept the death of my ex-wife, you had to accept the death of your dreams to do this. Isn't that great, right? But again, it's like the performance anxiety both of them have. You know, it's such a fucking great, great line. A moment I love in The Stepfather is where he goes to get the mail and like they've mailed her like a picture of him because she's arrested. You know, what does the the, the family killer look like? And she returns home right at that moment. He's hiding the mail behind his back and he's like, something came for you. Yeah. And he brings out this, you know, uh, was it Cosmo or something like that? Yeah. And it's a great moment, uh, a great uh, Quinn moment because, you know, he number one is hiding who he is from her behind his back. But at the same time, he's got this double performance where he's pulling out this magazine and gives her this, like, I don't know if I approve of this, but you're a a teenage girl. So it's okay. Here's your magazine. You know, it's weaponized dad jokes. That is like what that performance is. It's, it's a great moment. I love that moment. Um, You know what the auditions reminded me of this time? This is a little tangential Um, on the deuce Bigelow special features, right? (laughs) There's Bigelow male jiggle special features. There's a scene where they're, auditioning the woman for the woman who washes the glass with That's her naked European breast. gigolo, of course. Oh, is it European gigolo? Yes. yes. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, yes, where she washed her glass with the breast, but it's like the producers and Rob Schneider and everybody like bringing these women in and having them rub their glass on the breast and it's being held in like a bar somewhere in like for presumably in, you know, in Holland. Uh, in Amsterdam where the movie <laughs> sure. takes place but it's like holy fucking shit like these guys put this on here like this was this awesome thing we did not like look at institutionalized systematic degradation of women it's yeah. it's really crazy and the audition had the same process this time too where you watch it and you're like oh, god the film industry is just such degradation in that way and to what extent I mean this is the whole idea of the movie is like performative literal performative women performers actresses singers performing femininity for men for the power structure whatever the power structure may be it's it's literally the idea of audition and why that's selected Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's funny too how the scene plays out it reminds me most of like the uh audition scene from bring it on you know where they have like a goofy there's even a cheerleader like a goofy cheerleader you know yeah and, uh, oh <clears> my god just, just so much in front of them. isn't this for pippin um why why teenagers why do you think these movies instead of having little kids or a gaggle of kids why do you think they pick teenagers both of them like basically the same age why do you what do you think the the idea is there well again other than Westlake, you know kind of dealing with issues with his own teenage stepdaughter uh, I think obviously when you are trying to come in and just try to very unnaturally become a member of the family and the woman is practically grown, there is no point. Uh, my wife, Jordana, for example, anytime anyone refers to her father's wife as her stepmother, she gets really pissed off reasonably because she was not raised by this woman. This is not her stepmother. You know, it's, yeah. it's her father's wife is who it is, even though both of them, I think, would like her to think of her as her stepmother. Yeah. Um, but it's you're not going to win because that person is too grown up. They've already had their father figure there. They've moved beyond that. And whatever issues they're having, they're not going to trust you to solve it. And again, going back to audition, it's sort of, again, that he sets up that weird power structure within their household where the son has this confidence that uh, it's almost like the father feels like he is trying to like 
make the son proud of him by like finding like happiness and like finding another woman. Like he almost has to look to the son, not only to, you know, uh, to satisfy the son's need for like normalcy and a real family, but also to, he looks at the son for son for protection. The son is ultimately who comes and saves That's him exactly it. I think he's, I think both uh, scripts are trying to stack the deck in favor of Jerry Blake and Asami. I think mm. if it's a parent with a little kid that they're protecting, you're so on that parent's side and oh, so on the kid's side that you can't be inside the head or the perspective of the other character at all. I think it's trying to stack the deck of these are young adults who are able to handle themselves a little bit, right? Like you're saying, the son protects the dad and saves him at the end. Same thing with the daughter. We'll talk about the endings because they have the same ending. The daughter protects the mom at the end of the stepfather i think that it's trying to make it not parent as a protector protecting somebody helpless in some way it's trying to in a perverse way stack the deck in jerry blake and asami's favor you know although i'm still rooting for jerry blake versus jonathan brandis and stuff <laughs> um and I, no i agree with you but I and i think, think also that's why the son is protective and the teenage daughter has to be rebellious too she yeah. can't be a good girl she has to be somebody out there who like she'll mix it up you know but My, i think that i think that the kids both kids both teenagers you know, relationships are important too. They both have like brief scenes where they have, you know, a potential romantic uh, yeah. partner, you know? And I think that that's interesting to look at like, what is like a pure thing, you know, as opposed to the stepfather thinking you're with a boy, that means like, you're going to be a slut. And like, yeah. this is not what I want. It's like, no, she is growing like a person and having like a normal let, relationship with somebody. Something yeah. Let me tell you about this character. Let me tell you about this character born in the USA poster. Our town poster. She's all American, I tells you. This is the most all American young girl y'all ever meet. Um, Apple tell, pie. I, <laughs> I tell you what I did not enjoy watching it this time that she has a nude scene after we've been emphatically told she's 16 several times <laughs> that she's 16 is a plot point. And it's just, it was not pleasant to me. It's it like, get this out of my eyeballs. Who it is nudes, like what? Five yeah. second new, uh, topless shots. Yeah, of all, don't, of all time. don't, don't, don't have a plot point B. She's 16. And then show me this, get this the fuck <laughs> away from me. Um, I also like that, uh, that in Toby uh, Hooper is responsible for that too, in the, in the fun house. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I love that, um, uh, that, in um the son's love is used against the father in audition when she says tell me you'll love only me and he says of course and we think that's meant romantically and then she's like oh but you also have your son too even if i give you all of me you'll still share your love with your son and that's so fucked up a way of thinking about it but it's also true that the love is divided and how when people say i love you i have no other love to their in a romantic way they exclude the kid from it right because the child if you are parents and have a kid together that child is an expression and extension of your love right mm -hmm. when you're a step parent it's like no that is a separate love that's going to interfere with our love and that's what the stepfather is all about and she points that out in that movie and it's a very fucked up twisted thing to do to a guy like oh look you're another liar you said you'd love only me but you love your son too don't you mister hmm, and you're like lady <laughs> come on now that's really interesting but it's can also I, can yeah. i ask you 
as a single parent who's dating, have you ever had a woman be jealous of Parker? You know, what's crazy when I first got divorced, because I'm the, the single custodial parent. And so I have my son a lot of the time. I thought this is going to be a problem. I'm going to meet women and be like, my son is here with me all the time. Uh, you know, he's the most important thing in my life. Uh, he's he's young, you know, we started, I was five when we got divorced, you know, and it was never once a problem. There was never once a woman that was like, that's a deal breaker one time i can think of one time there was a there was a woman who was a lawyer who i was talking to who was like that i just don't want kids that doesn't jive with me but it was literally i've been surprised and and you know me i've dated three women um that it was never that it was never a problem i was really really surprised by it i really really thought it would be a problem especially because i mainly hear most of my friends are women, so divorce stories are from women about what it's like to be divorced. That men really don't like it when women have a kid. That oh, sure. that men are really like, you got a kid, no thanks, get rid of them. And if the, it's been no problem whatsoever Except for men. Jerry Blake, who's like, perfect at all. Yes. <laughs> well, that's the thing is he's such a performance of the ideal, you know, that that it's that it's unsettling. That's sort of what the what if you are Reagan's wet dream? You know what I mean? What if you are the ideal man in the Reagan era? You know, you'd be Jerry Blake. And isn't there something fundamentally fucking psychotic about that? You know? Yeah. Um. No, I haven't. I haven't had that problem at all. But I'm also super duper slow to introduce women to my son. I'm super duper slow with that. And I do. I actually feel the opposite. I feel like there's a lot of pressure for from women to meet him and become a part of his life before I'm comfortable with that. I feel like there's a lot of pressure. I think I'm getting Jerry Blake a little bit. I think I don't, I'm not getting Asami. I think I'm getting come in and I'll be the perfect mom. And I have to to sort of push back on that. Um, I, was, I thought that it would go either way because Parker is such a charmer that you know, yeah. I can imagine like, obviously the women you date love him or the opposite of he's too charming. And they'll be well, like, there was, <laughs> he, there he was really like him more than me. There was one woman I dated that I liked a lot and I introduced Parker to her. We went like on a little trip with like her kids and Parker and his friends and Parker and her fucking hated each other to a point where I had to break up with her. Wow. It was crazy. I've never experienced anything like that because everybody, you're right. Everybody loves Parker. Everybody in the world who meets Parker is like great kid, a plus no notes. Right. And they were like at each other's throats, it, like instantaneously, like, of, you know, and I was like, I cannot believe what I'm, it was the most miserable weekend of my life. It was like, <laughs> I, I can't believe this is happening. It was really Marin and her husband came and visited me and were immediately like, what, what is going on here? Like, what is the, I've just stepped into, I'm, we're breathing poison in the air here. Wow. Um, yeah. But other than that, He's no, definitely, everybody's stepping her right out of your life. <laughs> that's true well that was the other funny thing is scoland no it was like <laughs> it was like one word and it's like goodbye i really really i'm i, I think i love you you're incredibly important to me uh, this is if it's a choice between you and my son it just ain't even a choice you know it's just not mm -hmm. even a thought i'm having about any of this you know yeah. um you, yeah it's really sad she's awesome i think nothing but amazing things about her uh, and just somebody that like, I, it's, it was, it was really a super duper fucking bummer. She was a goddamn Fox. One of the most beautiful <laughs> women I've ever dated. Um, so the guy in the sack, 
yes in the sack emasculated surgically altered to the point of being completely inhuman like a yeah just a, a nightmare right yes um funny you know how that comes late in the movie where it's a stepfather when you see what jerry blake has done to the first family and that whole kind of pre-warning of this is what could happen to you protagonist yeah. if you're not careful <laughs> yeah and it comes so late in audition you know where it's like this is what's gonna this is your your, your future buddy you're looking at it yeah you know, this you're gonna be in the sack next yeah let's talk <laughs> about the endings because they are so similar one thing that i love about both these movies is like you're saying they but they introduce things very late in the film and one thing i love is that which i always forget i always forget until i see the movie then i'm like wow i thought this happened much earlier yeah yeah they both also have sequences late in both movies where the family seem legitimately happy they both have sequences where the main characters i should say seem legitimately happy the thanksgiving scene in the stepfather right and the waking up from the dream scene in in um audition moments where they seem legitimately happy before they go to these super grim endings they also both have the um person who's standing as a bulwark between the imperiled character and evil, you know, the producer friend who's like, she gives me bad vibes and doctor and the uh, psychiatrist. Um, They both get knocked out of the film, like two thirds of the way through and disappear. And they both have that same function setting up their endings by pulling that bulwark away from them that, you know, there's nothing standing between these characters and the evil and the the person they've embraced this dark what's going to prove to be a dark force they've embraced so they both have the same flow too they both remove the bulwark have a temporary false happy ending and then go through the ending you know Mm -hmm. to the ending and they're the same ending right (laughs) right the the parent gets brutalized right Mm -hmm. the kid comes home finds the parent gets into a melee with the with the replacement parent and um kicks them down some stairs to kill them sure. they're they're the exact same endings <laughs> in that way although when jerry comes through the mirror it's really we're through the looking glass here people no um they're the they're the same they're the same endings what do you think of that like when i'm watching it this time i pick these movies sort of thematically and then i watch them and it's like these last the way these stories flowed, like they're virtually identical by the time they get to the last scene. They also both have dogs that are like imperiled and you're (laughs) super afraid for the dog when Jerry Blake's like playing with him, holding the knife sitting on the kitchen floor. And then the dog gets fucking killed in audition. You know, I know dogs are great are symbols of the ideal nuclear family. Right. So that's makes sense why they're there. But what do you think of the similarities of these endings? Am I overstating them? No, no. But I think they're similar and completely different. You know, I mean, for the one thing, uh, the son has never met Asami. Right. This is the first time he's meeting her. He literally comes in and says, Who who's this? You know, yeah. he sees her. You know, he's completely <laughs> he probably wouldn't guess in a million years that this is his dad's new girlfriend, you know. because um, <laughs> she's it, so hot in that scene too. Dad's girlfriend is not as hot as her dressed up in the the leathers and the skirt. God damn, she looks great. Anyway, go on. <laughs> uh he, you know, he is the Deus Ex Machina, the successful Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> yeah. Know. Uh, late hour, you know, arrival who actually doesn't get uh, Scatman Crothered, but you know, at uh, the last minute. But uh, so that relationship is different. Obviously, the stepfather has all been about his relationship with Stephanie and 
their, you know, confrontation has been inevitable from the beginning. Yeah. You know, obviously it's going to come down to the two of them. The mother is not going to play a part in it whatsoever. Uh, and it's not going to be significant. Although it's interesting too, to think about us, uh, Ayama, uh, Ayama being, um, tortured and brutalized the way he is, uh, when you think about him compared to Jerry Blake. Yeah. Know, uh, who's a character who is just, you know, being, uh well like any good you know monster at the end of a movie you know falling <laughs> through ceiling stab with glass <laughs> exactly um he is really the one who has taken all the lumps here you know the same way as uh aoma is when asami actually dies it's very quick i mean it's shocking yeah. quick. you know she gets kicked down the stairs and then she's gone and then they both right. mutter like touching uh touching expressions of seeming genuine feeling that yeah. we realize they have no sense of genuine feeling or they call into question what do you mean by genuine feeling and what is the rehearsed performative thing to say because he says i love you and then she says her little speech about how she never expected to be selected right and it's Which these repeating from their second date yeah Right. That it's mm -hmm. that what are they performing here or are these their genuine emotions that because of their abuse, they've just never been able to process correctly. That that leads me into my big question for you. Are these characters evil, Jerry Blake and Asami? Do you think the movie wants us? Do you think they're evil? Do you think the movie wants us to think of them as evil? Do I think a man introduced having just axed murdered <laughs> children is evil? I would say, yes, the movie, I think the stepfather wants us to think Jerry Blake is evil. But evil um, in a sense, it goes out of his way to not make him an empty killer, though. It it goes out of its way to humanize. Weird way. Yeah, yeah. It sympathizes him in that you recognize that humanizes. He is yeah. looking, sure, humanizes that he's he's looking for something. He wants something. And he's let down that he doesn't get it, that he can't find it, that you understand that frustration the real world problem of a father yeah. of a stepfather not being able to connect with his wife's kid yeah you know you understand that and in his own twisted way of being like well if it doesn't work out i'm just going to have to kill everybody and leave yeah it's not acceptable morally but you certainly understand his real life concerns here you know like what's really dogging him and even when he is murdering his way into her heart like get rid of the psychiatrist who's between them and things like that you're like that's right jerry go get her you know <laughs> like well, do what you got to do it's it's interesting because the movie really does I, I don't think it wants to make you sympathetic i think it wants to remove it as a simple evil faceless Jason killer motivated by malevolence and chaos. I think it really doesn't want that to be him to make him motivated by evil. There's the scene at the end where, when he's, so touched by seeing the perfect family that he sold the house to and the little girl who he's been on this played on the swing set with waves at him i find that moment really moving because you realize there's this perfect life that we all want that is unattainable and that he's seduced by this perfect life because he had a miserable abused childhood growing up that 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 seduction of a real family that fantasy of a real family is so um 
irresistible and beautiful. I find that moment really moving his performance. And I think the writing is careful to make his psychosis into something other than a love of pure cruelty and, uh, and a love of chaos and a love of violence. It's something other than that. I don't, I don't, I think it wants you to say, what if this guy isn't evil? I do think it wants you to say that, right? To the extent that, you know, you're like Norman Bates obviously wants to have continue to have a relationship with his dead mother. Well, and, like yeah, uh, the Saw family, you know, is normalizing life after the slaughterhouse closes down to the yeah. best they can. You know, that these are broken these are clearly broken people, mentally broken people. Or maybe a more complex idea of evil like those movies have, but go on. Sure. As as opposed to why does Freddie do what he liked doing? Because Freddie loves killing. You know, there's (laughs) nothing and he's angry that he was stopped from molesting kids by those parents. Like there's no (laughs) motivations to these things, or even angst, which is is just a character who has a blank uh compulsion to cruelty. You know what I mean? Like it's, I think it's trying to say something. Maybe it's all it's trying to say is that like uh, the complexity of evil and the sources of evil and the seduction of evil are, are more harrowing and complex and, and understandable and relatable than we want to admit, you know? Yeah, Whereas well, no one would make the claim either that Freddie, I'm not making Jason the claim. The he's character. good. Not you, not yeah. You, but the, they're not the main <laughs> characters of their movie. You know, true. Jerry is unquestionably the main character of the stepfather. Yes. Know? So, yeah. And I'm not, about him. I'm not trying to make any claims that anything he does is justifiable. That's not what I'm saying, or even excusable in the context of mental illness and trauma. Right. That's mm-hmm. not what I'm saying, to be clear. He does vile, reprehensible, objectively evil actions, right? But I think the movie wants you to have a more complicated sense of that. And I think with Audition, it's even more ironic and complicated because this is this is a Me Too movie, right? It's about abuse in the movie and music and performing arts industries about powerful men taking advantage of beautiful women, right? Uh, to sort of pay for play, career for sex. It's really like the basis of Me Too, of institutional exploitation of young women in their bodies, specifically in the context of the music and movie industry, right? That's sure, what this sure. movie I mean, is. Recent allegations against, uh, you know, Cien Sono, another Japanese director who is yeah. a great director, you know? Who was Sounds operating like in point. V Cinema at this time yeah, alongside yeah. Mieke. He's yeah. one of those audition guys, you know? And it's like, oh, that's so fucking disappointing. But yeah, this movie definitely has that in mind. Uh, and, I, and I feel like you kind of politely uh, ignored me saying things about like, you know, the second half of audition may not really be happening. Yeah. You, know, not, you know, that it, no, I think it's, I think that's fair. Anything, you know, is, you know, uh, a projection, his projection, you know, and that him waking up uh, next to her back at the hotel guilt and fear is yeah. reality. Yeah. That it's his guilt and fear and his inadequacies made, you know, manifest. I would also say, you know, I love the ambiguity of the movie and I would never very clearly state that is definitely what's happening. Um, but so then the question is like, again, Aomi being the main character, uh, uh, Aoma being the main character, he's, he's the yeah. bad one. He's the evil one. He's the Jerry Blake of the movie. 
because yeah. he's the one who but has he's deeply sympathetic yeah of course he is right yeah because yeah i don't i'm not even sure his ideals are unreasonable the way jerry blake's are you know i think his ideals are naive and sentiment and sentimental and romantic of course, of course. but i don't well, but he, he's are. not Jerry's he's romantic. he's not yeah but like her having problems in school that's human stuff this he's not the Ioma is not somebody whose list of demands are like, be submissive to me, make me dinner. I think you're portraying him in the way you're talking about but, him a, a but, little but, bit but, as, as more traditionally. Again, she yeah. talks about her history of abuse and he doesn't want to No hear question. About, you're right. No question. You know. Yeah. But I also think the movie's making the sort of ironic point that she's been uh, abused and exploited and the effect of it isn't turning into her, her turning her into a righteous hero right the way a rape revenge film becomes about the righteous wrath right mm-hmm. it instead makes her into a morally gnarled psychopath right that it it, that it breaks her that these things don't necessarily make you into a hero that they can make you morally gnarled and that's part of the tragedy of it that's that's the entire tragedy of it is that it breaks people and that's why it's bad that's why this exploitation and abuse is bad because of what it psychologically and morally does to the victims um so i think that i think that it has a very ironic sensibility it has two ideas that are in conflict and counterpoint with each other the wrongness of ayama and the wrongness of asami right Mm -hmm. the correctness and sympathy of ayama and the correctness and sympathy of asami right these are ironic things that are deeply in conflict with each other and i think a very subtle and well-considered way you know absolutely i agree and i think you know just the visions that he has when he learns about her abuse, or sometimes he sees her as a little girl who's abused yeah. by this horrible guy. And sometimes he sees her as an adult who is abused. Yeah. And I just thought about like all of the women I've known who have told me they've had a history of abuse and how just completely involuntarily, like I start thinking about that history and I start thinking about like, you know, uh, you know, did it happen to them when they were young? Did it happen to them when they were older? Like, could they have avoided it? Why did this have to happen to them? I think men just have this immediate reaction to something like that, that they, most men can't, you know, don't have a reference point to it. They just, you know, hear that there's been abuse and they- Unless they were themselves it. abused. I think saying, that- most, yeah. most men who, yeah. you know, don't have <laughs> anywhere near the level of abuse that women have experienced. And- um and that they their their imagination goes crazy, you know. Especially if it breaks into this idea of like this is a this is a woman, <clears throat> two ideals, right? One being like this is a woman who is now with me and and belongs to me, who is like you know my my girl, right? And the other being like this real revelation of like this is a woman who has had other relationships who has, you know, had a, had a background, has had things happen to her, whatever. And these two things kind of run up against each other in a way that could like mess with a person's mind. And I think that's what happens to Ioma a lot in this movie. Yeah. In the second half of this movie that he's having these like crazy visions of like what must have happened to her, which could lead to like, well, I guess if that something happened, something like that happened to this pure good girl, she, she'd probably go from like, you know, being, a regular person to being someone who cuts off people's <laughs> tongues and, and feet and puts them in a bag. Yeah. 
I think that I, it's also I think interesting. So. I, I'm saying that I think that evil yeah. is kind of projected onto her. Yes, I think exactly. Exactly. I was going to say, I think with these two characters, they both, what they both want is sympathetic that you could reframe these movies very easily to have these be sympathetic characters. Jerry Blake wants a happy family, the happy family life he was denied by an abusive childhood by the unfairness of the universe and asambi wants revenge on the men who abused and exploited her these are very sympathetic motivations for both of them i think what's interesting is that um jerry blake is sort of more overtly uh uh, evil in the sense of like he's annihilating families without justification his behavior is sort of um he's it's more overtly horrifying terrifying horrific kind of behavior right but he himself is this sort of much more charismatic inviting performance he's he's a more compelling character that you can enter into more easily whereas asami is doing something that's i think a lot more justifiable for a lot of people i've definitely met and read people who see this movie in a completely feminist reading and are doing sort of cheering worthy stuff for it but she's presented as such an opaquely demonic character when she's revealed for her true self you know just that scene of her like vomiting in the dog bowl and feeding it to the bag man you know she's so monstrous in her behaviors and the kitty 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 you know the like deeper 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 when putting the needles in his eyeballs is just so delighting in the cruelty in a way jerry blake does not seem to jerry blake wants to wash his hands of the thing and move on she wants to revel in the torture of it yes. and that scene is so annihilation and suffering yeah, yeah. Sure. i want to make you suffer that's my next question for you right is um and and i think probably my my final question um do do these movies go too far specifically does audition go too far these movies um audition came out in the context of torture porn we mentioned hostile it was frequently lumped in with this sort of ill-defined genre that's basically an idiotic concept that like people are watching these torture movies to get off to i always love outlaw Vern's joke about it where he's like yeah i saw some torture porn and then he shows actual boxes of pornography featuring torture because if you you like torture and pornography that stuff exists you don't need hostile to watch there's actual pornography bdsm pornography you don't watch hostile if you're into that you watch the actual pornography people aren't watching this to get off on the torture just such a fundamental understanding of how these movies exist but yeah, even but now yeah. you get the anna biller types being like these movies exist for dudes to jerk off to and it's like i guarantee you that is not what this is <laughs> you know yeah i like how birds who calls out the guy who said uh my little in-joke is that I call that movie hostile. Yeah, it's it like... The, uh, that's not your joke, buddy. That's, that's the pun. That's, that's the pun of the movie. That's, that's like Stephen Merritt talking about reviewers uh, being like, 69 love songs? Eh? 60... Like, it's a joke they're <laughs> making, not the joke he had made with it. But Ebert famously gave a review to The Stepfather, which I will not read on the Patreon for people. May that be funny. Maybe I'll read that one, too, with the... With the uh, the Terrence Rafferty one that's like 
these there's a horror movies just exist to inflict violence on women. They have no reason of being except this mindless violence. And it's like, how could you be more wrong about what this movie like? I, I, you know, just I don't know how somebody can be as consistently wrong and have bad taste as Ebert and have his reputation survived. It's fucking crazy that you could just be so wrong all the time and and have any kind of stature, just constantly wrong. But um, do you last review? Was giving to the wonder four, four stars <laughs> it's so it's almost as good as garfield a tale of two kitties <laughs> um do you think i think with the stepfather it's almost hilariously stupid in the context we've discussed of late 80s horror movies to say it goes too far do you think audition goes too far what was your feeling i would say this is this scene is so isolated from the rest of the movie. It's, you know, it's leading up to it. And there have been little moments before that, like the guy in the sack and things like that, that kind of set you yeah. up. But uh, I think, I think it's 100% earned. I don't think it goes far at all, especially if you want to do the kind of, uh, you know, mental gymnastics I'm doing to say, maybe it didn't even really happen. Or you want to like have this yeah. same structure, a Haneke type sort of safe structure of like, well, maybe they, maybe they, you know, got one of them. Or yeah. maybe hit the rewind button. Who knows? Um, I don't think it goes too far. I think, you know, I think you could see this and then watch something like uh, Gozu or Ichi the Killer, you know, and think yeah. this one is fairly tame in comparison. You know, what's amazing is that I've always read that she really made herself vomit into the dog bowl that the yeah, actress, the guy, the guy really, yeah, really and really, yeah, that stuff. It reminds me of the, um, you know, the, how the opening credits to Ishii the Killer appear in a puddle of jism, right? Yeah, yeah. Have you ever heard the story of that where uh, uh, Miyake was like, I really want to do these opening credits in jizz, but I don't know where I'm going to get <laughs> jizz for it. And Sukamoto was like, oh, I'll get you jizz and showed up two days later with a bucket full of jism. Yeah. Oh, um, uh, good. Well, he's a. It makes me. Some love, actors are just dedicated to their craft. It makes me love that. Sukamoto so much. I mean, I love all the stuff. I love the extra tongue. I love I mean, the Sukumoto, bad guy. Sukamoto is a guy who you watch his movies and you're like, "Is this going too far?" I think Miyake still has enough of like a comic book sensibility. Yeah, that, you know, and, and enough humor in his films of like you're like, "I'm I'm with it. I got it." You know, yeah, I'm, it's I'm going along with this. It's it's funny. I I watching it this time. My son was like, oh, can I watch Audition with you? And I was like, yeah, maybe. Because it's one of the movies that I'm always like, nah, that's not a horror movie you can watch. Um, and he decided like, no, I don't want to watch it. And then when I was watching this time, I was like, this goes on so long. This is so painful. This is so horrific. I would have been so fucked if I had let him watch this. Like, I can't <laughs> believe this is way worse than I remember it being and goes on way longer than I remember it being and was making me feel horrible. Even though it's coming, you still feel horrible when she's sawing through the bone and then it goes, it gives a like, click as it, as it breaks through with his foot coming off. Yeah. It was, it was so much worse than I remembered it being watching this time. But I agree that it's sort of, um, if the standard is, I don't know, it's still, it's impact still really works for me, just as the impact of the stepfather really works for me. I was also thinking too. Yeah, in any horror film, you know, if you sympathize with a person, you don't want to see him get horribly tortured. Yeah. It's not going too far. You're sympathizing with that guy. Yeah. And, you know, at the same time, the movie's been complicated enough that you can appreciate that, you know, the two things that at play here, what is his guilt, you know, in this as being a man, 
you know, on the one hand, he is a nice guy. He just wants to be happy, just wants to find a wife. On the other one, he put up a fake audition to look for a wife, you know, and it's like, that's unjustifiable. And he belongs, you know, in that category of the the horrible rapist and, you know, abusers of women who, you know, have uh, done, you know, brought her to this point in her life. He yeah. He deserves it to an extent we all deserve it to an extent we all have horrible thoughts and do horrible things without thinking about them and usually for like justifiable good reasons yeah it's interesting too is also for comparison just where the worlds are how far audition goes rafferty compares the stepfather to de palma which first thing one the clams shot from Body Double, where he films just the clam sign for the diner wall. Uh, there's the diner shot. It says diner in this one. It's the exact same shot as the as the world famous clams <laughs> shot from Body Double. Um, but then also it's like, God, remember when people were like, De Palma goes too far. And you watch those movies and they're like fucking g-rated now you know yeah. it's sort of the same thing has happened with audition where it's like this goes far but there's just movies that are so drenched in gore and blood and depravity even by him ichi the killer even two years later goes so much for like the shit like the woman having the the hook put in her nipple ring and pulled out and the razor sliced across it like just every single second of ishi the killer is going further than audition it's sort of it's it's funny to keep recontextualizing that or stuff visitor q speaking of interlopers and families. yeah <laughs> uh, let's do a teorema visitor q uh, podcast one day but it is it's interesting you know uh, they're both unsettling but i think the way in which they're unsettling is stuff like the stepfather has this like realization of stuff that's much more the way it hits you isn't the violence in either film necessary it's stuff like the stepfather realizing that calling somebody pumpkin who doesn't want to be called pumpkin is is really unsettling it's really abrasive it's really invasive it's really abusive to do that it just those movies have such a, a subtle sense of the modulation of emotions and the modulation of relationships that that's really i think where their impact comes from more than any of the violence and you mentioned the axe the westlake book earlier on which is you know the story of a guy who is eliminating people who could potentially get the job that he so desperately <laughs> needs and that's another portrait of like a guy who like you understand his frustration and like you understand like his real world suffering you know there are real life parallels to be made to his motivation for murder uh and so that the violence of that book never seems necessarily extreme, even though he is murdering people left and right. You just you, you have that sympathy for him the way you have that again real life sympathy for a Jerry Blake or for Asami and what she's gone through. That doesn't make it seem exploitive or extreme when the violence comes into it, you know, because you've spent time with these characters and you like it, you understand where they're coming from. And these are both films with a lot on their mind, like a lot of good ideas about who these people are and what they want. And, um, and you want the good guys to survive. You don't want the bad guys to succeed, but both of them have kind of complicated relationships with like, you know, like you're asking who is the evil one in this movie? I think what's interesting about, audition and what makes it ultimately a slightly better movie than the stepfather is the violence at the end of audition does not 
exist within the boundaries of its genre that that there's something about it that's so surprising and so out of bounds and so strange that um it just feels like that movie feels like it leaves its genre behind whereas the violence at the end of the stepfather feels like you said before wrote and predictable and sort of expected and he behaves the way a proper horror villain should and i think that that's that's the difference between the two of them is that you feel like you've left uh, terra firmer behind with audition you know that you don't know where you are you don't know what reality is and that the violence is so strong and degrading whereas the violence is invigorating and fun in the way vanquishing a villain always is invigorating and fun and stepfather and i think that that's really the biggest contrast and the villain of audition is the only one who dies if she even dies, you know, if she, even well, dies. she's probably quadriplegic. I want to see no, I the, mean, uh, like if, no, I mean, if that whole sequence <laughs> even happens, I, I would, no, 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 no. What I want is the, uh, is the Martha ending for, for Asami and audition that the next scene is them at the hospital with her quadriplegic in the wheelchair. And she's going to be reliant on him for the rest of their life. I want the Fassbender's Martha ending is what I want for that character. <laughs> Sounds like a movie I saw at Toronto this year. <laughs> Um, any final thoughts? Should anyone ever under any circumstances remarry after a divorce? I say no. I say no. I'm on the record now. What are your feelings? Any thoughts? That's absurd. That's absurd. I know people who are much happier in their second marriage than they were in their first. Uh, on the person. <laughs> um, I, I certainly know. Donald Westlake. I, I, yeah, I was going to say. I he met Abby Westlake, who, you know, stayed with him for the rest of his life. I'm certainly happy some people have gotten remarried because they leave me alone a lot more now that they <laughs> now that they're remarried. They're not my there you go. They're not my sad sack, middle aged, divorced friend anymore. They don't <laughs> sleep on my couch. Um, Nelson wrote this short story about his wife, Susan, his fifth wife. Yeah, we ended up with for the rest of his life. And it is this beautiful story that will make you cry every time because it's just about how he 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 laments that all the years they didn't know each other, you know, that it took them this long to get together. Oh, a real thing for like a real case for like, you know, Hey, sometimes the marriages don't work out, but there is someone out there for you. You know, maybe you just, you're not going to meet until you're 50 or 60 years old. John, you know me very well. You know me that I'm a, a sentimentalist and a romantic, you know, performing cynicism and nihilism. You know that John, of course. Um, any final thoughts on the movies? I love both of these movies. I don't know if I made it clear, but I, I fucking love these two movies. And I would recommend anybody listening, do this double feature. This is like a good, solid double feature. Just if you want Halloween night tonight, you haven't decided what you're going to throw on. Both are easily streaming. Uh, if you want to watch them, just throw them on. It's 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 a good double feature. It really works. The last thing I'll, because I, I, I didn't, I couldn't think of a place to put it in, but a, li <laughs> a line that I love in audition is the producer saying, happy people can't act well. Yeah. And that's something that you think of in the stepfather a lot because he's the best actor in the world, you know, with the, you know, uh, the, the face that he puts on for her, you know, when he turns around. Yeah. The way he's able to put it back on. He's a very unhappy person, obviously. And I yeah. think that's kind of interesting. I, I do think happy people are bad, are bad actors, honestly. <laughs> I agree with it. I think that that's I think that that's a possibility. Okay, just remember, John, I've never felt unhappiness because I was unhappy all of the time. <laughs>